We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The past has its own terrible inevitability, but it is never too late to change the future. That's according to historian Heather Cox Richardson, who observes that the political, racial, and economic divisions in the country evoke the crises faced by the nation on the brink of the Civil War. And now, as we prepare for a transition of power to President-elect Joe Biden and the nation's first female vice president, Kamala Harris, what can history tell us about the tumultuous moment we're living in? Richardson, a professor of American history at Boston College and the author of How the South Won the Civil War in the popular newsletter Letters from an American, joins us to discuss the past and the future of the American experiment. That's next, after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Tomorrow, the nation will inaugurate its 46th president, Joseph R. Biden, and its first female vice president, Kamala Harris. Meanwhile, President Trump faces an impeachment trial, and there is fear of another insurrectionist attack. Impeachment, insurrection, inauguration, it's a historical trifecta, and joining us to make sense of it all is historian Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history at Boston College and author of How the South Won the Civil War. And welcome Professor Richardson, good to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess the place I'd like to begin with you is sort of with your subtitle of your new book, How the South Won the Civil War, which is Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. And I'm wondering, particularly since you've written about uh, seeing that uh, holding up of a Confederate flag in the Capitol is something that made you weep personally, and what you describe as the lowest moment as an American that you've experienced, Being an eminent historian and one who has a large following, I'm wondering what you see as the real soul of America, because there are some who would say that it's this kind of violent racism and white hegemony of males, uh, but uh, I think we often mean a higher morality. What do you mean? When I talk about the principles of America, what I talk about is the concept of human self-determination, which was a really radical idea in 1776 when the framers of uh, or, uh, the, the founders of the um, American Revolution and later the framers of the Constitution tried to create a government based on the idea that, that every man, yes, it was a man at the time and almost always a white man, but the principle of the idea that human beings were equal, that some people were not better than others is a really radical idea. Now, the idea that we somehow got it in 1776 or with the um, the ratification of the Constitution, and it's been that way ever since, is a complete whitewash of our history. But those principles, I think, make this country uh, something really worth striving to, to make uh, to make really come to life. Um, so I, I am never um, blind to the fact that we have not achieved those ideals, but the fact that they are our ideals, I think, matters. These are what uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and I know you did your dissertation with the uh, famed Lincoln scholar, uh, 
David Donald, uh, this is, these are our better angels that we're talking about here, as John Meacham is constantly reminding us. And uh, I want to explore that further with you. But let me, let me go to what happened uh, when that Confederate flag was in the Capitol. And uh, to some extent, uh, I've been reading your work and you've been talking about uh, these white males, uh, mainly poor white males, as being pawns and cannon fodder, uh, essentially for those who are more hegemonic in their control of uh, American power. And, and yet that rabble uh, and that mob or whatever you want to call it had among it some really fierce races who would like to, in fact, start another civil war. Yeah, I think it's important when you think about when I'm talking about oligarchy and democracy, um, there's a lot to unpack there. But the big themes that I try and pull through American history are those two themes. The one on the one hand that every person should be equal before the law and should have equal access to resources, not necessarily equality of outcome, but equal access to resources, including education, for example, um, and equality before the law on the one hand. And on the other hand, this older idea that, you know, some people are just better than others. And that was an idea that the, the in the United States that the elite members of the um, Southern slaveholding class in the 1850s tried to turn into first the definition of our democracy and then into the bedrock of their own new nation, the, the Confederate States of America. And they plan to spread that idea across the world. And those two ideas, on the one hand, that everybody should be equal before the law, and on the other hand, that some people are just better than others because of their education, because of their money, because of their connections, because they're somehow just born better, are ones that have been at the heart of a struggle within America. But they're embodied really by that that difference between the American flag that won during the United States Civil War and the Confederate flag that tried to destroy the concept of equality. So when I saw that Confederate flag in the halls of our capital the other day, um, in a place where it had never flown during the Civil War or afterward in all the times that former Confederates tried to make their will known and imposed on the American government, that was a real kick because it suggested that there were enough people in America who really did like the idea that we should be divided into castes, if you will, that they had gained enough of a foothold in our discourse, in our politics, in our culture, in our society, to enable them to invade the very heart of our democracy. And that's no small thing, even though those were, as, as you, you quoted me, uh, there were a couple of things there, but th they were a ragtag bunch in many ways, yes, but that idea that they symbolized, that some people should be better than others, strikes to the very heart of what you just called our better angels, but I would actually call the heart of what it means to be human, to strive for self-determination. And all I think you are saying is based on equality before the law. Once that's gone, perhaps this whole great experiment uh, has not necessarily descended uh, into nihilism, but it certainly has uh, potentially become very seriously assailed and crumbled. And I'm wondering about where the traditional rule of law fits in, in your judgment, in terms of this impeachment. I think you've described it as a constitutional imperative, but um, if there's a trial, that constitutional imperative implies that the Senate should do its duty, and uh, yet we have perhaps uh, Mitch McConnell as being the one who's going to make that decision. Uh, who is complicitous here? Who ought to be brought to trial and who ought to be convicted in your judgment? I am a huge believer in the idea of letting the legal process play out, and I, I 
point in the recent and our recent history to Richard Nixon and the fact that he was pardoned um, by Gerald Ford, of course. And what that meant was that, you know, whether or not um, he would even have been indicted, I suspect he would have been, and whether or not he would have been convicted in the trial, who knows? It's a road we didn't take. But by giving him a pass and not making him uh, answer to the American people for his crimes or alleged crimes, and, and there's evidence of them, of course, but I'm not the, the prosecutor here, um, we, we got this idea that somehow politicians were above the law. And I think that was a really dangerous boundary to cross because, of course, there th then uh, it wasn't long after that that under the Ronald Reagan administration, we get the Iran-Contra affair, we get the George W. Bush administration willing to go to war over weapons of mass destruction that, in fact, they knew didn't exist. Um, that's a really dangerous road for us to go down, the idea that, that some people don't have to answer to the law. But to go back further, if you think about one of the places is that we really failed on making people accountable for crimes against um our legal system, that would have been the Confederacy. I mean, there really was no penalty um, for having engaged in an attempt to destroy the, the U.S. government, an attempt that cost 600,000 lives and almost $6 billion. And the fact that we did not make it odious to try and destroy our democracy in the 1860s and the 1870s, and instead permitted those very insurrectionists to go ahead and kill United States allies, the African-Americans who had fought on the side of the United States government, government is something that we are still dealing with today. I mean, again, the Confederate flag in the Capitol would not have happened if it became odious to be a member of the Confederacy in the late 1860s or early uh, 1870s. Somebody well, forgive me, Professor, uh, but we did impose reparations on the South, and that was seen as something that was very injurious by many. What do you mean by reparations? Well, they had to make payments, didn't they? No. I'm not talking about punitive uh, jail sentences. I'm not talking about legal processes. I'm just talking about reconstruction and what it imposed on the South. And it imposed on the South some fairly heavy financial obligations, did it not? No. No, it didn't. Um, the, I mean, they had to pay taxes like everybody else did, but no, there were no payments made, and there were certainly no um, no reparations to um, to African Americans. That was something that that many African Americans and Republicans in the North wished would happen, but no, there was no balance sheet or any kind of, of punitive damages at all. The thing that happened, it, it, I mean, if you're thinking about the the finances of Reconstruction, the thing I that am was, yes. Well, but the thing that was hard for the South at that point was that both Northerners and Southerners thought that um, cotton was still king, American cotton was still king, and it wasn't because the British had gone ahead and developed the Egyptian and the Indian cotton markets during the Civil War. So the South could not repair itself the way it had intended to. But, but no, there was absolutely no, you have to pay back for this. Uh, it just didn't happen. And what, you, what uh, you do see is, you know, complaints about taxes, but that's, that's something yeah. very different. Yeah, no, I'm glad you made that distinction. I'm also thinking, though, about the fact that um, uh, we've got this election denialism now, which you've also written about as being a logical culmination of what you call the American conservative ideology, the movement I conservative, which we'll talk about, I hope. But uh, this is an idea of denying the legitimacy of any who deny the ideology. And you're saying, again, it has historical roots to it. It does. And that, again, 
Um, one of the things that I really like to do in my work is talk about sort of the long threads of history. So, for example, the idea of election fraud, you know, of course, we can point back to the 1990s when people like Newt Gingrich couldn't explain away uh, why Democrats kept winning with any other thing than saying, well, the motor voter law permitted Democrats to go ahead and create sort of illegal voters. And in the mid 1990s, you start to see this, this talk about voter fraud, about somehow elections being uh, being stolen by um, illegitimate voters. And that, of course, we know is vanishingly rare, that that's completely a, a myth in the modern era. But in the 1890s, there was a similar set of arguments that, in fact, that uh, African-American men um, and, and people of color, but they're really focusing on African-Americans in the 1870s and the 1880s, should not be permitted to vote um, because they did not, they weren't really true good Americans because they were hoping for some sort of handout from the federal government. Again, this was mythology. But by the 1880s, you get politicians talking about how uh, the vote needs to be curtailed, that not everybody should be able to have a vote. And in 1875, with the Minor v. Haversett decision, the Supreme Court Court actually articulates this in a case over women voting in Missouri in which they say, yes, citizens, um, women can be citizens, but citizenship does not necessarily mean the right to vote. So after that happens, there is this attempt really to curtail black voting, also white immigrant voting, and every state in the union, with the exception of Massachusetts, rewrites its state constitutions after the Mississippi Constitution of 1890, which enacts grandfather clauses, for example, or poll taxes to make sure that black people actually can't vote. And that's considered legitimate because you want to purge the society of people that you think are polluting it by wanting a handout. And, and as I pointed out, not probably in anything you've read in some of my more scholarly work, it's a very short step from you people are un-American and shouldn't vote to you people are un-American and we need to get rid of you. And there's no accident that after there's an attempt to renew African-American voting in 1889, we get a sudden dramatic spike in American lynching. Again, if you've just joined us, our guest is Professor Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history at Boston College and author of How the South Won the Civil War, subtitled Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. And she's also, of course, the author of the uh, popular newsletter, Letters from an American. Uh, we'll talk about that, I hope, in the course of the hour. But we do want to hear from you. How do you think history will remember this moment? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history at Boston College and author of How the South Won the Civil War and the popular newsletter Letters from an American. How do you think history will remember this moment? You can give us a call now. The number to call toll-free 866-733-6786. Again, that's for your calls 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I'd like to talk a little bit about letters from 
an American with you, uh, Professor Richardson, if I may, because it's quite a success story in many ways, much more than perhaps you had imagined when you were just being a seamstress of political history, as you describe yourself, uh, trying essentially to be an explainer or a translator of American history. It all happened with a yellow jacket sting, I mean, uh, as, as I understand it, right? That's correct. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Letters from an American is that I never set out to do it. I never set out to create them. They are very much uh, a product of my readers and me and, and people working together to try and make sense of what this country is really about. Um, so yeah, I was I was uh, stung by a yellow jacket and I'm allergic and did not have my EpiPen. I know I should have. Um, I've heard a lot about that, let me tell you. But I just sat down to try and explain to people um, what was happening in the news on September 15th of 2019, just really to while away the time while I was trying to see if I needed to go to the hospital. And the next thing I knew, um, you know, I, I, the newsletter had the, the Facebook post had become a newsletter and they had a name and I've been writing ever since. It was also a key historical moment in many ways because of Adam Schiff's letter to Joseph McGuire. It was actually, uh, who was national intelligence uh, had uh, at the time uh, and keeping the name of the whistleblower, which led to the first impeachment and uh, the first Trump impeachment. And the reality is that the legislative branch was actually challenging the executive branch. Uh, that was new and that was unheralded in many ways. That was exactly right. That was on February 3rd, I'm sorry, on um, September 13th, Friday the 13th of 2019, Adam Schiff wrote a letter to acting DNI, a McGuire, saying, we know you have a whistleblower complaint, and the fact that you are not giving it to us suggests it's somebody really big in the executive branch, and you're breaking the law. And that was the first time that I had seen, uh, you know, I follow this stuff really closely. I'm a political junkie, and it was the first time that I had seen a specific accusation that a specific person was breaking a specific law. And that is a different kettle of fish than somebody saying, for example, oh, the emoluments clause in the Constitution, we think you've overstepped that. You know, that's much harder to prove than you, um, you know, DNI McGuire, are breaking this particular law and we know it. And that, um, that was actually really jumped out. So that's actually what I sat down to write about on the 15th, two days later, although um, although there were many things happening that day, it, it was not like it was some sudden revelation from the heavens that I needed to start writing. It just happened to be that I had a, a good topic to write that day. But let's talk about another historical moment that you write about that actually begins your book, and the book is again called How the South Won the Civil War. You begin with actually the nomination of Barry Goldwater at the San Francisco Cow Palace uh, in July of 1964. and. This was one of those moments where really you see things kind of coalescing, particularly around this movement of uh, conservatives. Isn't that an amazing moment? You know, I, I had certainly seen the, read the speech um, the, that Barry Gold, Goldwater goes on to give about um, extremism, uh, you know, being a, a good thing in the cause. But I had not put together the idea that it was South Carolina that put him over the top. So, um, you know, and that's quite deliberate. I mean, that doesn't happen by accident. They go ahead and they figure out who's going to be the voice that is going to make somebody a presidential nominee. And it was South Carolina that did it. And when you watch that on, on YouTube, which you 
you can do. It's a really dramatic moment where you can see the former Confederacy standing up behind this Westerner, which was one of the key themes of the book. And it's important to remember, of course, that in 1964, Goldwater picks up his home state of Arizona, which is pretty common. Uh, most presidential candidates do, not all, but most. And, um, and the five states of the Deep South. And that wedding of the post-World War II American West with the pre-World War II American South is a really important one. And I think pre uh, presages the link that you're going to see, again, that we saw last week with the um, the sort of militia movement types that are characterized uh, by people in the West coming together with the, the Confederate flag. Well, it's also, as I think you point out in your book, uh, kind of a coming together of the independent yeoman farmer that existed uh, to a great extent before the Civil War. And uh, I suppose what we could call um, the cowboy, the Western cowboy, goes all the way up to Ronald Reagan and uh, takes us into a kind of coalition that is, is particularly fascinating now in terms of what happened in Arizona, the president saying that the election was stolen from him there, or for that matter, what happened in Georgia, where you have uh, uh, not only an African-American preacher, but also a Jew elected as senator. Uh, as senators in a state that was, uh, you know, for so long now, red and so long deep south and Jim Crow for so long as well. I mean, does this suggest to you maybe, uh, again, the better angels calling or something of a shift, uh, historical well, shift? It's really an interesting moment, isn't it? Um, that it, The other thing that I would throw into that mix is the Confederate statues coming down over the course of the last few years. And and one of the things I keep emphasizing is that, you know, what what does it mean when statues come down? It means regime change. I mean, that's just a, sort of a universal. If you have statues and tear them down, you're changing the things that you value in your society. And one of the things that I think is really important about um, the moment that we are coming out of right now in the next, in, in today and tomorrow and in this period, is that we've had this backlash against the New Deal stretching really from at least Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. And it's one that's been characterized by the idea that the government is the enemy, that um, taxes are only in place to go ahead and take hard working, the, the tax dollars of hardworking white men and redistributing them to people of color and to feminist women, and that we have to, to, to release the individualist who was in fact represented after 1866 by the American cowboy. And it's an image, of course, that Ronald Reagan picks up, but also many of the people who follow him. Rush Limbaugh talked a lot about uh, cowboys. George W. Bush goes ahead and buys a ranch in Texas. He goes ahead and wears a cowboy hat. And by the way, I once did a radio show where I talked about the fact he was from Connecticut, which is just a fact, you know, and, and you would not believe the hate mail I got. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this because it's not like there's an argument here. I can't help where he was born. He's actually, and he went to Yale, you know. I know the you Texans think, want to claim him, clearly. <laughs> exactly. Or people who weren't Texans wanted to claim him. But that idea of individualism and the destruction of the New Deal state that really was the defining feature of politics from uh, Ronald Reagan until Donald Trump, I think has met its match now. And a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, that didn't work out so very well. Wealth has, has moved upward. Ordinary people feel like they've been shut out of the government. They feel like they can't make a living. And it's time to, to move that needle back to the idea of a government that actually works, as Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, and for the people. And this feels very, very much to me like one of those, um, one of those times that reveal a change in the American sentiment and also in political alignments, and that usually last for at least a generation.
Well, since you're quoting Lincoln again, I have to ask you, uh, Lincoln was one who believed in ordinary Americans, and certainly uh, I think a quote of his is apropos here. He said, limiting equality to white men and excluding black Americans is the same argument uh, that's used, uh, been used for centuries to enslave people uh, all over the world. And yet uh, there are those who want to tear down Lincoln statues now, uh, particularly in some respects because of his attitude toward sending slaves to Liberia, but also toward the Indians. And I'm wondering, as a historical scholar and someone who has worked on Lincoln through the years, what your thoughts are on that? Well, there I have two thoughts on them. And the, the first is, uh, is the Confederate st statues. I see absolutely no reason to have any memorials of the Confederacy on any public land. That's just a no-brainer. What other country puts up statues to people who try to destroy it? That's That, to me, is an absolute no-brainer. But what you're asking about when you talk about Lincoln or Jefferson or all the other statues, Amelia Earhart, any of the many statues we have, is I think it's important to remember the difference between history and commemoration. Like, if we're putting up statues, for people's history, none of us can be up there. Uh, because by nature, you know, human beings aren't perfect. If we were, I wouldn't want to see a statue of somebody because it would make me feel so awful. But generally, when we put up statues, we are commemorating values that we think that person embodied. And to that end, you know, was Abraham Lincoln perfect? Absolutely not. But he did embody, to me anyway, this idea of democracy. Now, there's certainly people in our past who might have embodied something at one time that we liked and that we have now changed. So, for example, Andrew Jackson, uh, during the depression and the reason he's on our $20 bills as well is because he represented in that era the idea of somebody who represented ordinary Americans. Of course, we've rewritten that, that he represented ordinary Americans really in rhetoric only. In fact, he turned most of the Southeast over to very wealthy planters. He himself was a slave owner and he was responsible for the, the um, Indian Removal Act and the Trail of Tears. We don't commemorate those values anymore. He means something different. So I really have no problem with people um, you know, rethinking what we want to commemorate. I do think we need to have a public conversation about it, though. And 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 I, you know, when we get these stories about people wanting to tear down George Washington or whatever, those are very important voices. Whether or not they are the voices that will actually rewrite the way we think about the past is not at all clear to me. They're important conversations. But if we do a clean sweep and only put up the people that we, we value today historically, we're going to have a lot of empty pedestals. And let me read some emails that are coming in. Uh, again, our guest is uh, Heather Cox Richardson. If you care to join us or would like to join us, you're welcome to do so. Toll free, 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. And uh, here's a listener named Roberto who says, I'm so glad the guests clarified that slave owners and Confederate leaders did not have to pay reparations. That must be said. What must also be said is that those slave owners were actually paid reparations by the U.S. government for their property loss or loss of ownership over now freed black people. And the caller, uh, excuse me, the listener is absolutely right on that. Um, no, no, no. Actually, they're not. They're the, there were um, in Washington, D.C., the emancipation of enslaved people in Washington, D.C. carried a price tag on it. They were paid for that. They were not paid reparations across the entire rest of the American South. That no, was but that was solely in D.C., right? It was only in D.C., yes. Yeah, right. Um, Right. Okay. Okay. I'm glad we clarified that as well. That, Here's that another was a mistake. Right. Somebody made that mistake on Twitter the other day. Yeah. And, no, it was it was just DC. I knew. Here's okay. David who says, "I feel we are at an inflection point. The right has transformed lying and sedition into a political movement. If the Biden administration embraces the concept of unity to dismiss accountability, a future right wing leader will use the Trump playbook potentially 
be more effective in their results. And there has been even speculation about how Mike Pompeo, among others, wants to play that role. I'm just interested, though, in uh, we're coming up on a break soon, but I'm wondering about your thoughts on this um, uh, the steal that supposedly took place as far as the most recent election was concerned. You write about the modern myth of voter fraud, and you say that voter fraud is uh, vanishingly rare. Um, but the use of voters, uh, and, and the use of voters particularly to suggest fraud, is not necessarily a new phenomenon here. And there was, of course, uh, just looking historically for a moment, there were uh, all these reports about JFK being elected because of Richard Daley using dead voters and voters that didn't exist and so forth. But post-Civil War, uh, we're talking about a phenomenon that has been pretty much non-existent, aren't we? Uh, well, actually, immediately after the Civil War, no, voting fraud was actually quite common then until 1890 when we get the Australian ballot and yeah. the, the states step in to go ahead and have a formal system of voting. That changes things really dramatically because before that, you literally voted on a color-coded ticket that was printed by your party and you couldn't split the ticket. That's what that means. You had to deposit it in a box and people could see you doing it. And the ballot balloting was generally done in places like saloons. So and, and so you knew exactly how the voting was going to go. And we had many, many accounts of broken open ballot boxes or of stuffing the ballot boxes. That's where that idea comes from. That changes first in 1890 with this modernization in the time of, uh, of the voting system. And of course, in the present, when we have now new systems of, of, um, of scanning uh, mail-in votes, for example, and matching signatures and checking in and, and uh, all the different ways that one protects the votes, the, the, um, the number of, um, of questionable ballots has really plummeted. And, you know, you saw today that Rudy Giuliani was out there complaining bitterly about provisional ballots um, and how unreliable they were. He voted on a provisional ballot. You can just see it's really a rhetorical device on the right now because they can't command a majority of the votes. So they have to figure out ways to, to cut down voting. And again, the same thing happened in the 1890s. It's just then it was in many ways a lot easier because there really was such a thing as voting fraud. They were actually participating in it if you read their letters. Could you also say something about the phenomenon of um, uh what has been called, I guess, uh, crisis actors, uh, those who are, well, for example, uh, after the Civil War, they were used to discredit the narratives of African-Americans' uh, testimony, saying they were paid for their testimony or they gave false testimony. Uh, it was also done with against violence uh, of the Ku Klux Klan when there was testimony of that sort. Yes, and but but in that case, you know, that's just a cool coincidence. I think I don't really think anybody quite deliberately picked those themes up today when they talk about crisis actors. And what we're talking about is the idea that when people give testimony either to the media or in the case of the 1860s to to congressional committees, that because they are being paid um, for their time, they're making up stories so that they don't have to work. They can just go ahead and um, and you know, spin whatever yarns they want. And that was a charge that was made against African-Americans who were testifying about the conditions in the South after the Civil War as they're being hunted by the KKK. Um, you know, that's, again, a, a, a pretty common way to discredit your enemy uh, when when he or she is, is giving testimony of one sort or another. The idea nowadays of crisis actors is, you know, probably a spontaneous generation, but the theme is the same one. You can't trust 
whomever, uh, you know, whoever is speaking about some catastrophe because he or she must have been being paid to say that. And, and that's just, again, that's a rhetorical device designed to destroy the testimony of the people who are calling you out for your behavior. And I'm looking at a listener email here who wants to know, what does Professor Richardson think of the 1776 commission report put out by the Trump administration yesterday in the Garden of American Heroes? It includes Alex Trebek, Whitney Houston, among others. Alex Trebek, I think, is Canadian, but I'd like your thoughts on, <laughs> like your thoughts on the 1776 report particularly, because uh, this, this was an attempt in, in many ways to override this commission 45-page report, the 1619 Project, uh, as leftist propaganda and that was put out by the New York Times. It talked about slavery's genesis going back to 1619 in American history. Um, and this commission actually called slavery a necessary evil and talked about three-fifths uh, of a slave human being human being a compromise, all kinds of things that are, well, uh, th that are really objectionable in many people's minds. Your thoughts? Well, they're objectionable because they're wrong. I mean, first of all, let's put that out there. Important to remember a number of things. First of all, uh, no historians signed that document. There were historians who were originally consulting on that project and they dropped out. Those were political scientists and, um, and Republican operatives, first of all. Second of all, that's uh, pretty much what homeschooling evangelical curricula has have been saying now for decades. So there was nothing really surprising there to those of us who follow that stuff. It's really terrible history. Um, third of all, um, it, it, it has no blueprint to go anywhere. I mean, it was really, to my mind, just sort of a marker in the sand to enable people like um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to go ahead and, and pull it forward when he runs for office in 2024. That speaks directly to his base. It's not, you know, it, it's not like it's the basis of any curriculum in designed to go forward into public schools or anything. But I wrote about this last night because the piece that interested me about it was the seeming denigration during the last administration, as still as our administration, during the Trump administration, of hard work. You know, democracy is hard work, and people put skin in the game to have a democracy that, in fact, treats everybody equally before the law. And maybe they do it only by supporting their neighbor, or maybe there's somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer who gets out there and puts her literal body on the line. But by God, it's hard work. And the idea that you can just sit there and say, oh, I already live in the best country ever, suggested to me not only the idea of uh, privilege, of course, but also the idea that somehow America was something simply to be owned. It was perfect from the start and it was something just to hold on to. When in fact, when we're at our best, we're working at it. You know, we're, we're fighting the Nazis. We're, you know, fighting for civil rights. We're trying to d restore our reparations to the indigenous people who've been so badly hurt by our country. We're trying to make our dreams a reality. Got a break, Professor Richardson. We'll be right back in 60 seconds. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history at Boston College and author of How the South Won the Civil War and the popular newsletter 
letters from an American. I just want to say one more thing about the 1776 commission. When I said objectionable, I was talking largely about other things in there that include, uh, well, uh, uh, inveighing against affirmative action, against uh, uh, any kind of challenge of the right to bear arms uh, or gun control, uh, calling the anti-abortion movement one of America's great reforms, and so forth. It reads more like, in some ways, a right-wing manifesto. But let me get to some callers here. And Lewis, you're first up. Good morning. You're on the air. Thank uh, you to uh, Mike Krasny. I, I appreciate all the work that you've done, and I'm going to miss you listening to your voice on the radio in the morning. So thank you so much for that. Um, but to get to my point, um, I just want to talk about just the, and we've been almost touching on it throughout the discussion today, but just this lack of consistency that is a essentially essential to the conservative movement in the United States, and this lack of consistency essentially is, you know, starting even with Nixon in the way that he was uh, pardoned and even, you know, just how that is a fundamental aspect of conservatism now. And it's it's Trumpism now um, leading its way to, you know, a, a proto-fascism. So uh, thank you again. Thank you for the call. Um, Professor Richardson, how strong is Trumpism now that Trump is gone in your judgment? Uh, I actually think it's less strong than people are envisioning in the sense that it is certainly extremely visible right now. But, you know, one of the things that is is striking to me is, you know, those of us who study this have been aware that this has been going on for a very long time, this kind of... Um, uh, uh, white nationalism, the rise of militia movements, the rise of Nazis in America, the rise of, uh, uh, it's not a conservative movement, it's a radical extremist movement. That's been there and it's been there a long time. But now finally people are paying attention to it. So again, we're throwing it on the table now and many people who weren't aware of that are, are frightened and thinking that we are being overrun. But for people like me, I say now people are aware we can push back against it. So um, I really actually think the party's going to split. The Republican Party's going to split and the the people who stormed the Capitol are going to go down one road and the more moderate Republicans are going to try and steer the party back into what is much closer to mainstream America. And we'll bring another caller aboard. James, that's you. Thank you for waiting. You're on. Good morning. Thank you. Um, history. I don't know what happened to James. He seems to have disappeared for the moment. We'll try to get to more of your calls. Uh, I'm going to read some comments though, that are coming in. Here's Noel who tweets, I heard a commentator say uh, that the Capitol insurrection crowd was much like a lynch mob of 100 years ago. Uh, some were there to foment violence. Most were there to witness the spectacle. Marcella writes, this discussion illustrates why the Bible cautions us against creating graven images. Once you raise a statue to someone, it's hard to focus on their negative aspects. And Patty writes, thank you, Professor Richardson. I read your daily report every night before going to bed. It gives me perspective on the day to hear about it in the larger historical context. Your writing helps me stay sane. What does it feel like to live blog, to live blog this interesting and frankly terrifying period of American history? Um, well, that latter question is a very interesting one, and I think an important one for everybody. And that is, as I say, I think I am simply reflecting what is going on around me right now. And it is terrifying. I, you know, people are like, oh, you're so calm. You know, don't think that for a minute. I am not aware of the extraordinary situation in which we are living. There, a mob attacked the United States Capitol two weeks ago. That is just mind boggling. But 
Um, I also recognize from my study of the past that when Americans awake and when they decide to take matters into their own hands to recreate a more perfect union, as we've called it, they succeed. So we're in this moment that is um, terrifying in many ways, but also incredibly exciting. When I think of what younger people are going to do and the options that they have now, the things that they can accomplish, I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to witness it. My only regret is that I'm 58 and I'm not going to be part of the rebuilding to the degree that I wish I could be. Well, we may be extending longevity in ways biotechnically that haven't even been conceived, so who knows? But let me get another caller on. Eve joins us from Sebastopol. Eve, welcome. You're on the air. Hey, hey good morning. Thanks so much. Um, uh, Dr. Richardson, first of all, I just want to thank you so much for your letters. They've really helped keep me sane. Really appreciate that. I'm sure a lot of oh, other people glad. say it. <laughs> your, my question to you has to do with um, the roots of uh, white supremacy in our just the founding of our country and in legal doctrine that's kept going ever since um, in the doctrine of discovery, which was the papal edict back in the 1400s about, you know, basically finders keepers. We own it and nobody else gets to have any control. And what do you think about that? Well, that's, first of all, that's a really interesting doctrine because, of course, this is one of the reasons historians have so many wonderful records is because you had to prove you discovered something. So they're always putting up crosses and writing documents and having witnesses, which is a wonderful thing for us. But, you know, I, I don't deal with uh, that that with the Pope or really, or with the doctrine of discovery, because I tend to study what happened when English people set foot on what became the lower 48, the, the, um, the North American continent on the East Coast. So while I'm aware of the other histories, I don't do that much with them. That being said, the issue of race in America has been here really since the beginning, since before 1619, because of course the uh, English people and the Europeans who came to this coast came, uh, into contact immediately with indigenous people. And this is before the pilgrims and Jamestown and all this. This is with the fishermen. So that has, there's always been race uh, uh, conflict and cooperation on this continent. But it becomes central to our legal system, obviously, um, in the uh, in the, at least by the, the late 1600s and the early 1700s. And that's one of the things that I think has been so important about our founding is we have this idea of equality and the idea that everybody should be equal before the law. But the fact that that was limited to white men is not unimportant because one of the reasons that white men could all feel equal was because they defined themselves as being above women, especially who really are not even kind of people and, and indigenous people and African-Americans Caribbean um, Americans, people who, whom they enslaved. So that idea of equality in America has always been linked to inequality, at least uh, first legally and now rhetorically, that if in fact people of color and women get rights, somehow white people, especially white men, lose rights. And one of the things that I always try to talk about is that there's no reason that has to be the case. You know, that, that actually is not it's an intellectual problem. It is not a real problem. And if we could actually grapple with it as an intellectual problem and strip it out of the places it has snaked its roots into our legal system, into our represent cultural representations, into our voices, into our media, we actually could, it could manage to bring our ideas of equality to life. But we have to recognize that equality in America has never been universal. It could be, but it hasn't been yet. And that's, um, 
something I think that we can have on the table now going forward. I think you point out in your book, and it is an underlying thesis in the book, that equality for all in the minds, particularly of going back to slave owner narratives, but even going forward from there, meant an end of liberty. It meant an end of liberty, particularly for those with white privilege or those who were white hegemonic males. Exactly, exactly. It's an astonishing construction, but it, it, that's precisely how, I mean, if you think about it, the real question of, of a democracy is how, why does a democracy destroy itself? And the, the answer that I came up with was the idea that people of wealth managed to convince voters that they uh, were under attack by the other, and the other were people of color, especially, and women who, if they had any power, would go ahead and elect leaders who would vote to redistribute wealth. And that's where we get this bizarre idea in America after 1871, that the idea of African-American voting is a form of socialism uh, that's predicated directly on the concept of the idea that um, black people voting would vote for leaders who would, you know, put in roads and schools and hospitals. And those things would have to be paid for by tax dollars and tax dollars in that era mainly came from white people. So we get this construction in 1871 that socialism has come to America. I mean, that's a huge issue in the 1870s. And it's done so by the, the spread of voting to populations that previously had not been able to do it. It's still a huge issue. I mean, it was an issue not only when Bernie Sanders was running, but certainly when those we were uh, going on the Capitol, uh, those uh, people were yelling, we're not going to let socialism happen in our country and all the rest of that. It continues. Uh, let me bring another caller on here, though. James joins us. James, go ahead. Hey, thank you. Uh, our founding fathers understood that history is written by the side that prevails. And so how history will remember this time is going to depend a lot on this new Democratic Congress and the Biden administration and what they do. Okay, thank you for that comment, James. We'll let it stand. Uh, I'm wondering, actually, uh, Professor Richardson, if you have some thoughts about uh, Kamala Harris being elected. Uh, I mean, not only a woman of color, but a woman of a couple of colors in her background, daughter of immigrants, and uh, you know, quite significant in many ways. Obviously, in some ways, as significant perhaps as the election of Barack Obama. I think that's right. But I think in many ways, perhaps um, a very different meaning to her election in that one of the major shifts that we have seen in recent political history is the rise of female voices. And one of the things that fascinates me is when you talk about, for example, the Democratic Party and the fact that Joe Biden seems to be reaching back to a sort of FDR kind of vision. Um, FDR's vision was very um, heteronormative, nuclear family oriented. He kept promising men that they could su support their families. And they were almost always white men to whom he was speaking, although obviously he reached out to um, African-Americans, indigenous populations and all that. He never did try to make them equal. He simply tried to give them a seat at the table. Um, Joe Biden might be thinking that way, but the women who are speaking for the Democratic Party now, uh, Kamala Harris, of course, but also Stacey Abrams and um, all the many people who've been running for office talk about America in a very different way and the responsibility of the American government in a different way, in the sense that they tend to emphasize community and not family so much. If you think about the women who have um, run for office as uh, veterans, people like Tammy Duckworth, she doesn't talk about supporting her children. She talks about her unit in Iraq. She talks about working together as a team. And that's a new, that is a brand new concept in the, the relationship between Americans and their government. And having Kamala Harris in office suggests that there may in fact be a shift in the way, in our priorities and, uh, to try and emphasize 
the support for families of whatever makeup and of communities in whatever form, because it seems a very different sort of vision than anybody in America has brought to the table before. And of course, this whole shift starts in 1980 when women begin to split away from their husbands and vote differently than they do. So we get this extraordinary gender gap in the present. And I think, I think her election really emphasizes that. I think that's exactly right. And we're going to bring another caller on here from Oakland. Karen joins us. Good morning. Hi. Uh, Hi. Go ahead, Karen. You're on. Welcome. Karen dropped somehow. Let me go to some emails that are coming in. Uh, Nicole says, Professor Richardson, I'm a huge fan and one of your daily readers. Thank you so much for your many late nights bringing light in the darkness. In your analysis of the past four years, what key aspects of foreign interference in our political system do you see or suspect? Um, this is a fascinating question, Karen, <laughs> I, and what I absolutely love, because I've actually read all these documents. And to me, uh, and again, I'm not sitting here with the documents in front of me. To me, one of the things that, that all countries must, must grapple with is the future of cyber warfare in psychological operations. And you know, I've written about this, that that's where the real power is, is in psyops. And, um, and was there interference in 2016? Absolutely. Is there ongoing interference in our world right now by foreign countries wishing us ill through our um, through psychological operations? Absolutely. I mean, it was in the news yesterday. So I actually think that that's going to be incredibly important. And it's really important uh, politically, but it actually comes from a theory about advertising, which I've also written before, the idea of the packaging of constituencies to sell, for example, a washing machine can now be done to package them to sell them a political ideology. And that is something absolutely that democracies above all must grapple with, or we will not keep our democracies. And while it's horrifying in many ways, I actually find it fascinating because there is so much there, both that's being done and that must be done to counter it. It's a real interesting intellectual problem that has huge real world implications. And here's a comment from a listener named Darian who says, uh, love Dr. Cox Richardson's assertion that one group gaining rights doesn't take away the rights of others. We as a nation have enough resources to build a bigger pie, big enough for all to share in. Here's Bill joining us. Bill, good morning. Hi, thank you, Michael. And thank you, Dr. Richardson. Uh, my question is, uh, why do poor whites always think rich whites are ever going to help them? For instance, why did poor whites support the system of, of the Southern aristocracy post-Reconstruction, and they seem to continue to do so? Or think Donald Trump would be their messiah? It's a, it's a question to really ponder. Your thoughts, Professor Richardson? Well, this goes back to just to the concept of psyops. I mean, the obvious thing that, that historians have pointed to is that there is a psychological payoff to believing you're better than somebody. And if you can define those somebodies in very simple ways, they're Mexican-Americans, they're indigenous people, they're black people, they're women, whatever, it's easier to do. But I'm not going to stop there because what interests me is why do people believe that? Because there are other times in American history when they believe the opposite during World War II, for example, or after World War II, when you even have Superman telling high school students, you know, if anybody tells you that some people are better than others or that different religions don't belong in your high school, you tell them that's un-American. That's not who we are. So how do we get to these different moments in history? And I think the answers to that are because this is the way I think, you don't have to think this way. 
Um, I'm an idealist and I care a lot about economics. So I believe that when the system is set up in such a way that certain people become disenfranchised either politically or culturally or religiously, they feel like they're falling behind, they are susceptible to leaders who tell them whom to blame. And that's what we certainly had in the 1850s as the, um, the slave economy was basically reading most people out of it, most white people out of it. Um, the, the leaders of Southern society really cut back on the amount of information people could read. They made sure people weren't educated. They limited the kinds of newspapers that could come into the region. And they convinced their voters of things that were simply not true. Uh, the same way uh, you would you you can argue, I think, that a lot of tr Donald Trump voters in 2020 believe that Joe Biden is you know, corrupt and in league with the devil and is bringing communism or socialism to America, things that it, on their faces are ridiculous, but that's what they hear and that's the information to which they're limited. Knowledge really is power. And I think that that's a lot at the heart of why people support policies that are really no good for them. Yeah, we've just got about a minute left here, but when you, I know you've written about Superman. I think it's important to note that Superman is an anti-fascist uh, emblematic of anti-fascism was created by a couple of Jewish uh, guys. Um, and also when the caller brings up wealth and the admiring of wealth and thinking that wealth will save, is there a little bit of this tied in with our history of Calvinism? I mean, somehow the Calvinism was translated into the elect would be those, uh, and those would be saved with the most money and the most resources? Well, that's not quite what Calvinism is up to, but absolutely the idea that if you are favored by God, you will do very well. Crucially there, though, Calvinism demanded that you work, that you worked for God. And that's, again, very different than where we are right now, where seemingly you're simply supposed to be born into it, which is a really hard gig to get, let me tell you. Yeah, I think it was Jesus who said, feed my sheep. Uh, we'll leave it on that note. Always talk, good to talk to you. I appreciate very much your work and having you with us this hour of forum. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Thank you. That's Heather Cox Richardson. She's professor of American history at Boston College and author of How the South Won the Civil War and the popular newsletter Letters from an American. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, an hour up ahead with Mina Kim. And if you uh, care to, you can let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. We will not be with you tomorrow. The inauguration will be with you, and uh, we'll hope for the best on that score, obviously. And uh, we'll be back with you if all goes according to plan on Thursday. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for those of you who are involved in the program, writing in and tweeting in and calling in. And for all of us here, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.